Hey, everybody. All right, let's start making our way back to our seats. Good to see a, a few uh, new faces. Good to meet some folks. Uh, hey, everybody. It's different. When I started it, you know, at the beginning, it was like, um, you know, at the, at the 1045 service, uh, it was much less well attended than the 1115 service that we have here at All Souls. So that's uh, it's good. It's good to know. Um, hey, well, so we've got a couple of announcements. I want to direct your attention to the back page of our bulletin. We've got, um, you know, a few things going on in the life of the church. It's been really fun to see throughout the summer months the uh, pictures from the Sunday or from the the summer suppers and seeing folks gathered around the table, folks who know each other, folks who are just kind of meeting each other and. Uh, there are a lot of ways to kind of get involved in this next season of our church's life. One of those coming up for uh, the women of our church is the book discussion, uh, Shalom Sisters by Oshita Moore. It's starting up uh, pretty soon, so uh, if you're interested in that, all the details are on the back of the bulletin. A couple of things that we want to highlight coming up in the near future are on August 15th, we will be having our annual meeting. And that's a time for us to kind of highlight, you know, what God has done over the last year to take a look at our, our finances. Just in that spirit of transparency, we want you to know exactly where your tithes and offerings are going, how we are stewarding the gifts that God has given to us. But also, it's a chance to celebrate those stories of faithfulness, of how God has carried us through these very, very, you know, weird uh, last couple of annual meetings that we've had. Um, and so, in spite of all the challenges, God's grace and God's faithfulness has been evident. And so we have some stories to share about what God has been doing in that time. We have been meeting as a session, working on a, uh, a vision frame. We're also going to start a series on that, as that has uh, gotten to the spot where it's uh, very, very near its completion. And just kind of asking that question, what is God leading us to as a community in this next season of our life together. So we're excited about that. That's going to kick off uh, in August as well. The last thing I want to call to your attention is the screen, as we have a number of ways to get involved and to, to um, serve in the life of this community. And, you know, th there are a lot of things going on, and we need your help to make them happen. One of the ways that you can make the deepest investment is by being involved in the lives of our young people. And so to tell you more about that are Miss Catania and Miss Catherine. Hi, All Souls family. Jesus stated in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In verse 23, Jesus prayed for us to know that we are loved. Friends, we have an opportunity to be a part of something amazing in the lives of our children here at All Souls, to be a part of their story that God is writing. How do we let our children know God's love for them? We do this in a way that will build loving relationships that will mark their lives forever. They can't see the Father. They can't see Jesus. They can't see the Holy Spirit. But our children can see followers of Jesus. They see you. 
We as believers are called to be a part of this amazing opportunity for our children to know and love Jesus. I am looking for people to serve as teachers and small group leaders for both our 9 a.m. Sunday school service and our 1045 service. To be more specific, before we can start in September, we need at least 12 small group leaders to serve twice a month and 11 preschool leaders to serve twice a month. No need to stress about perfection. Just come with an open heart, ready to love on our kids. Thanks, everyone, and I'm looking forward to all that God is going to do for you. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, hey there, friends. My name is Catherine, and I am the minister to youth and their families here at All Souls. Uh, Catania and I are excited to bring together our All Souls Kids Ministry and our All Souls Youth Ministry to work together to pursue the biblical calling of equipping families in our congregation as we all work together to disciple the kids here in our church. We believe that this is a gospel-centered, scripture-grounded, spirit-compelled partnership of church members and families, and we believe it's vital to the health of our church and to go where God is leading us beyond action and this house and into our communities and all the world. Beginning this fall, we're looking for our 8th to 12th grade students to help out with our kids ministry on Sunday mornings, assisting adult leaders in leading small group conversations with the youngest members of our congregation. Our students need adults to help pour into them and to show them the love of Christ through relationship building and activities. For our All Souls youth, we need some small group leaders. They meet twice a month at homes in our community. We need some Sunday morning volunteers who want to hang out with our students once a month, hear some teaching and engaging conversation during our 1045 service. And we need a few volunteers who can help to serve dinner and hang out with our students at our large group gatherings here in the church once a month. I'd love to be able to share more about this vision with you. So shoot me an email or a text message and let me know when we can grab a cup of coffee and chat. As I mentioned in the Friday Five video, that if you have spent any amount of time around uh, kids or young people, you know that in sharing your hope and sharing your faith, you get way more out of it than you give. It is a, a joy and a, a blessing. Um, and so we don't just want something you know, from you. We want something for you and for your faith and for your discipleship. The volunteer board is out there. Um, we've highlighted our work with youth and children because that's an area that we believe is most critical to fulfilling our mission. And for months, we've been asking what a seamless uh, you know, transition to, uh, from ministry to children, youth, and families would look like. I'm really excited about the way that Catania and Catherine are running with it. It's an awesome way to get involved. So with that, I'm going to kind of roll into the message this weekend. We are currently in a series on the fruit of the Spirit, these kind of uh, markers of what the Spirit-led life looks like, the kind of qualities that God is building into us. And this week we come to gentleness, which I imagine you are not going to find on you know, BuzzFeed's uh, list of virtues that are prized within our culture or anything like that. And as we come to it this week, I'm going to make a little bit of a departure from the passage that's in our study guide. The one in our worship guide is, is, is right. And we're going to take a look at, at chapter 4 of Paul's letter to the Philippians, where he urges this community of people committed to the way of Jesus to let gentleness be the measure that they are known by. 
And the reason for that shift is uh, just a little bit of family news that I want to share with you. Our beloved associate pastor, Mike St. Dennis, was scheduled to finish out the last two messages of this series, but Thursday afternoon, evening, he received a call that his sister was found deceased, and so he is with his family this weekend. I want to invite you to keep him in prayer and his family. I mean, no matter where you are in life, uh, losing family, losing those close to you is just one of the most painful moments. And if you are in a position of spiritual leadership, like Mike is, um, oftentimes you face that pressure to, you know, be the pastor when what you really need is to be the son, be a brother, um, and just be with them to grieve and to, to not feel like you can answer everybody's questions because, of course, you can't. So just as we start, I want to kind of invite you in this moment to hold he and Meredith in prayer uh, like the way that he has held so many of you in prayer in your moments of grief. And so if you would just join me as we pray. Almighty God, we put our hope and our trust in you. And I ask that you would send your spirit of consolation to the St. Dennis family, to Mike, to Meredith, to his parents, his brothers, his sister. God, that you would be near to them. As we hear in our scripture passage this morning, the Lord is near. And so God, I pray that intangible acts of love and pouring out from this community, that they would know the sense of your nearness, the sense of your availability, that you would impress that upon them firmly, that they would know that they are being held in your presence. God, you are the one who lifts heavy sorrow. And so as they grieve, we thank you that they do not grieve as those who have no hope, but who know that all of life finds its fulfillment in you. And there's nothing that can separate us from your love, not even death itself. God, we pray this in your holy name. Amen. We're going to jump into the book of Philippians. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open them up to chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Uh, we went through most of Philippians last year, but there were some parts that we didn't uh, go through on Sunday morning. This is one of those sections. But it feels really uh, prescient for today and kind of where we are in our cultural moment. Because this is that point in the letter where everything gets really practical, where we start dealing with the everyday stuff of life, how we deal with the conflicts, with the disagreements, with the differing views that come about as we seek to follow Jesus together. And so with that, I want to invite Laura Jean to come and read and listen carefully, for this is God's word to you. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. Uh, one of the things that I cherish most about being a pastor are these moments where I've gotten to spend time with folks who are kind of nearing the end of their life. And one of the things that I have found over the, over the years, it's true time and time again, is that people's personalities uh, start to get a little bit more obvious as they get older and as they, as they age. And so people who were, you know, their middle years were marked by kindness. As they get older, they, they simply become more kind, more, more generous, more giving. And of course, the, true, the opposite is true of people who were cranky, right? As they get a little bit older, those pieces of them just get a little bit more set in stone. I will never forget the first day that I showed up uh, as a freshly minted, ordained pastor at a church in Richmond, Virginia. And as I was kind of moving my stuff into my office, uh, I heard this uh, you know, door open to the outer office and this voice you know, come in and talk to our office administrator. Well, I want to see this new associate pastor. What's he all about? So I popped my head out. I was like, Hi, I'm, I'm Stephen. Nice to meet you. And she did one of these things where she looked me up and down and was like, Oh, what are you, 12? I was like, I just turned 13, actually. I'll have you know. And then she just kind of was like, Well, we'll see how you do. Turned around and walked out. I was like, You came all the way out here just to do that? Oh, it's going to be my job to, I'm, I'm going to work real hard at loving you. And then I found over the years that uh, after a lot of time spending, you know, with her with, with coffee and tea, and particularly after her husband died, uh, that I w didn't have to try so hard anymore. I just found out that I did love her. In his book, The Road to Character, David Brooks contrasts two approaches to life. The one, he says, is marked by the pursuit of what he calls resume virtues. These are the kind of skills that you bring to the job market, the, the things that you have accomplished, the successes that mark your life. And the other is what he calls a commitment to pursuing the eulogy virtues. Those are the ones that are at the core of your being, whether you are, are kind or generous or honest or faithful. And I have to tell you that over the years, out of all the funerals that I've conducted, the, the men who were the most eager and most you know, joyful to speak at their father's funerals, particularly the ones whose fathers had enormous success in their careers, they never mentioned the hours spent in the office or the businesses that he ran or the patents that he created, but they had a lot to say about the hours spent in the stands at baseball games or of the life lessons that were learned while out hiking and fishing and just spending time with dad. It is not 
the decisions, even the big ones about career and relationships that mark a life. Often in these end-of-life conversations, people tell me that when they got to that place where they thought they were supposed to be, when they had climbed the mountain of success and they had reached the summit, it was only to get to that place and look out and say, is that it? I thought there was going to be more to that. Other times I've talked to people and they've gotten knocked off the path by sins, by, by failures, by, by hang-ups or broken family dynamics, only to find out that those aren't the things that mark or determine your life either. No, the things that mark your life is if we learn to live in Christ along the way, whether we allow the Spirit of God to bind us to His life that's how we will know if we can bear the fruits of the kingdom. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the church in Philippi, he was nearing the end of his life. He's in prison. He's got a lot of time to think. And he is mulling over and looking back and thinking on this church that he loves, this church that he calls his joy, his, his Stephanos, his crown. He's, he's using this image, uh, Philippi had a coliseum where athletic games like Olympic games were, were held and the winner of the competition would receive a victory crown. And he's, he's using this image to say, that's, that's who you are to me. You are my crown. You are my gold medal. You are my reward for running the race well. You are the thing that I am proud of. And so it's striking as he is thinking through all of this that he says to the church, one of the last things that he says to them is, let your gentleness be evident to all. May your life together be marked by this, by this quality of gentleness. Not by how many churches you plant, not by how many you know, arguments you win out there in the public square. No, let your witness to Christ be expressed in your gentleness to each other and to the world. By all ancients and modern standards, for that matter, if you were to just take a look at Paul's resume virtues, they were pretty impressive. I mean, he worked hard. He was goal-oriented. He, he founded teams. He, he led teams. He planted a ton of church. He wrote, like, most of the New Testament. Pretty solid, you know, like, career output, if you think about it. And not only that, he was not afraid of telling people the things that they did not want to hear. He got chased out of half of the towns that he went to, often with a shower of stones behind him. Those two things are probably related to each other. Paul had this you know, kind of strong personality, and he seemed to kind of like this about himself. And yet, somehow as he's reflecting on his life of all this achieving and all of this conflict and all of this striving and running the race, he says all of that was about cultivating in him and in these communities that he founded the quality of gentleness. Clearly, he thinks about gentleness differently than we do. Because I think in our culture, when we think about it, we equate it with softness or with weakness. But for Paul, gentleness has nothing to do with weakness. In fact, it is only the strong who can be gentle. It's only the strong, those who have power, have, who have the choice to whether to steward that power for themselves or to lay it down for the sake of the other. The weak, on the other hand, they cannot choose gentleness because they have no power to lay down. 
And at this point in the letter, Paul has already spent a ton of time pointing to how Jesus showed God's power, not in flexing strength, but by choosing to empty himself for us. He tells them, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The power of God is expressed in gentleness and in humility, in laying power aside. And this is the power that is at work in you. It's the power that's at work through you. So what does it mean to be the kind of community that is known for this quality of valuing others and setting aside self-interest and personal preference for the sake of others? Well, one of the, the key marks of our life in Christ is how we hang together and how we work things out. Jesus prayed, and as long as prayer in all of the Gospels, that his followers would be united to one another. And I think he prays this prayer because he knows the challenges that they're going to face, the, the things that are going to threaten to derail them, that, that the things that they are going to be known by, that, that the world outside is going to be watching what happens to them and whether or not the things that they face are going to draw them together or push them apart. And of course, it's got to be said that throughout our history, the church has not always had gentleness and being of the same mind at the forefront. This is an example of just one branch of the family tree of the church and all of the splits and all of the divisions. For those of you who watch Loki, it looks a little bit like the sacred timeline that is heading for a multiversal war. And the question is, how are you going to love the world? How are you going to love like Jesus is in the world if you cannot stand to be in the room with people who also follow Jesus? If you, if you can't love the persons who worship Jesus with you in the same building as you, in the same community as you? Paul is saying church is the community where the rubber hits the road, where we work this stuff out, where it gets translated into the humdrum of everyday life. And if we're going to be an outpost that shows people what the kingdom is like, if we are going to be a place that gives people hope, then we need to live in reconciled relationships with each other. We need to come to each other through the lens of graciousness and gentleness and humility. And the specific situation that he's addressing is this. There are two women in the church named Euodia and Syntyche. They're named after the uh, Greek gods of luck and success. So lucky and success are having a fight. Two women in the church. I know that stuff never happens. We don't know what they're fighting about. But the thing is, you know, it doesn't even really matter. We only have one side of the correspondence. 
But you could really substitute any number of things that tear at the fabric of unity in a church and that cause different factions to pop up. And the situation seems to me that these were leaders in the church along with Paul. He calls them co-workers in the gospel. They're, they're ones who contended by his side. And so he calls them out in front of the whole church. When letters like uh, Philippians were, were read, when they were circulated, somebody would take the letter from Paul back into the community. And when the whole community is gathered together, read it aloud. And so they're there together, Syntyche in the second row, Euodia in the first row on opposite sides of the building. And they're talking about, you know, having the same mind, standing firm together. And then he says, oh, hey, you Euodia, hey, you Syntyche, you need to work it out. Aren't you glad we don't handle things like that now? It'd be a little bit awkward. And he tells them, you know, all that stuff that I've been saying about putting on the mind of Christ, about being like-minded, about setting other people's interests above your own, about being gentle, about being humble with one another, that's you. And he tells them specifically to be of the same mind with one another. The word he uses is phroneo, and a good translation of that is to be intent on the same goal. What he does not mean is that they have to agree on everything. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. There may be differing points of view. There may be different approaches about how you get there, but be united in the things that really matter. Stay locked in on the heart of the kingdom, on Jesus, on your church family. And so the question is not what's best for me. The question is not what's best for you, Euodia, or you, Syntyche. It's not what's best for you. It's what's best for the gospel, what is best for your family, what is best for your witness to the gospel in your church, in the community that you live. I am calling you to have the same goal, to have the same Lord, to have that same bond in the Lord. I mean, the church has been having disagreements for 2,000 years. Some of them are pretty big. Of those splits, there was a fight. And Paul is not saying that every disagreement is unimportant. He spends a lot of time warning against false teachers, against those who would want to add requirements to God's grace. The church is called to steward a tradition. And so it constantly has to seek Christ at its center in the midst of every single cultural shift that pops up, in the, in the midst of all of the, the waves of public opinion, we have to see where Jesus is in the midst of it, in light of the scriptures. And we've got to learn how to read those scriptures with the community of saints who have come before us that will put a check on the biases that we have when we come to reading. But the point is not to dwell on the differences or to elevate them to centrality. Because some of the things, they are just, you know, some of the things that we fight about, they are just not central to the faith. And so we can have deep disagreements and call each other still brother and sister. This is where we learn how to be gentle. You can have all kinds of differences of opinion in a community. But as important as it is to have a position... It is also important, if not more important, to have a right posture. 
Because how you hold your positions is as important as the positions that you hold. The way that you embody them, the way that you, you, you reflect them in your, your way of being, in your tone of voice, in your mannerisms. I mean, I want you to imagine holding a bird in your hand. Right? If you, if you, if you want to hold it and keep it from getting away, you, you've got to have some conviction. You've got to hold it with with some force, but if you hold it too tightly, you will crush the life right out of it. And so have your positions. Have them, hold on to them, but if you squeeze the life out of somebody who is sitting across the table from you, that's not the church. I was sitting at uh, Spiller Park the other day having a cup of coffee, reading. I love coffee, baseball, one place. It's it, everything I need in life. That and Jesus and my family. But I was sitting there reading and, you know, there was a guy not too far away from me doing the same thing. And all of a sudden this guy came up and, and walked over to him. And, you know, they did that familiar dance of like, oh, hey, I know you. I haven't seen you, though, in a year and a half because of everything. How you doing? They're kind of doing small talk. And the other guy's like, well, yeah, let me just come up and grab my coffee and come sit next to you. And so they were, you know, exchanging pleasantries for a while. And then all of a sudden, they, they, they got into this conversation. It started to get a little heated over global warming, of all things. And they started, like, getting into it, and it started getting heated. Then it started getting nasty. And one of the guys was just saying to the other one, like, I can't believe how stupid you're being. Like, I know about this stuff. What are you talking about? You don't know anything. And so the other guy, just after a while, just got real quiet. And then he got up and left. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, man, what good does it to be right if you ain't got nobody to talk to? Like, wh- wh- what, did you, what were you hoping to accomplish with this conversation? Because you just made an enemy out of somebody who's never going to listen to you again. We do that all the time, though, particularly with the people that are closest to us. So many of the positions that separate people from relationship with one another, even divide whole congregations, are not even about the weightiest of things for us to consider. But this is what happens when we forget that our foundational unity is in Christ and we come to each other in and through Christ. And when we forget that, even the smallest disagreements will create fantasies for us to escape. When these little fractures take on the weight and the importance of the big ones. Before you know it, communities start dividing into little camps of us and them. And the mind of Christ that he is calling for, specifically in this argument between Euodia and Syntyche, is to remember that Jesus died for the one you disagree with. He's saying, look, look these are not bad people. These are not bad women. You, you love each other. You guys were co-workers in the gospel. Your names are written in the book of life. You are going to be moving into this resurrected life together. And so, like, best case scenario, you might be able to avoid each other for a couple hundred years, but you cannot outrun eternity. You better work it out now. He is telling them to deal with the problem, to stick with each other, not to run away, not to go somewhere else, not to find a new community. Because whatever community you are in, no matter how strong, no matter how good, no matter how like you it is, there will be conflict. End of story. 
we are more or less, I think, trained by our culture to just kind of pull the ripcord and bail out on relationships whenever conflict comes up, whether that is in work, whether that is in, you know, community, whether that is in friendships. I mean, I have seen people go from one job to the next, one marriage to the next, one small group or one church to the next because they don't know how to deal with conflict, because they don't know how to deal with people who don't live up to the standard of perfection that they set don't know how to set the right posture. Or because we think that the purpose of community is primarily about us and what we are going to get about it. But friends, community is a gift of grace. It's not something we manufacture. It's not, it's not always what we think it's going to look like, you know, like a bunch of really uh, attractive people sitting around a, you know, restoration hardware table having great craft beer and eating bacon wrapped dates or whatever you know like like that's what we think we want in community and don't get me wrong that sounds really good right now so like if any of you want that I'm down for it like let's hang but there's not anything wrong with that but the thing is community is something that God designs to change us not because he wants us to all be the same but he wants us to be intent on the same goal together I'm reminded of something that the Quaker theologian Parker Palmer wrote. And the quote is a little bit long. I apologize, but it was good enough to where I felt like I couldn't cut anything. In true community, we will not choose our companions, for our choices are so often limited by self-serving motives. Instead, our companions will be given to us by grace. Often, they will be persons who upset our settled view of self and the world. This one was the kicker. In fact, we might define true community as that place where the person you least want to live with lives. Community will teach us that our grip on truth is fragile and incomplete, that we need many ears to hear the fullness of God's word for our lives. And the disappointments of community can be transformed by our discovery that the only dependable power for life lies beyond all human structures and relationships. In this religious grounding lies the only real hedge against the risk of disappointment in seeking community. That risk can be borne only if it is not community one seeks, but truth, light, God. Do not commit yourself to community, but commit yourself to God. In that commitment, you will find yourself drawn into community. Friends, the gospel presupposes that community is a place where we really see each other, where we know each other and are known by each other without masks, without pretense, throughout whatever false selves that we put on. That is what we long for. And that means it's a place where people are going to call you on your stuff and say, hey, that thing that you think is going to lead to life, the thing that you think you want, it's, it's actually not going to be what's best for you. And it's not because they're judging you or because they think they're better than you. It's because in gentleness and humbleness, they want to restore you. They want you to see the real you, the you that looks like Jesus, that helps you be the one you already are in him, where the parts of you that you cling to that don't look like Jesus are kind of burned away. They can be surrendered in and among a group of people who are also asking those hard questions of life, of what it means to look like Jesus, and surrendering the things in their lives that don't look like him. And none of that is possible if 
We don't learn to hold on to our convictions in humility and in gentleness. Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Because that's how the world is going to know the grace of the gospel. When people look out on you and see how you love one another, how you care for one another, how you care for the community around you, how you handle people with whom you disagree. And so when people tell the story of this place, my hope is that they don't start with the resume virtues. They, they don't talk about how great the music is or how many missionaries we have sent out from our community or, or you know, how many churches we have helped start and plant. All that stuff is great, but in the end, the stories that matter are the ones that tell us whether or not we have stayed intent on the kingdom together. Whether we have become a place of welcome and hope for each other, whether we have learned to hold on to the truth with a posture of gentleness and grace. We're able to keep our cool when the temperature around us in the culture gets ratcheted up. And man, in a polarized world like ours, what a place of refuge the church would be, this little colony of heaven. We could just hit the pause button and do that. And now, friends, as we come to the table, we come as guests of the one who Though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. But instead, in gentleness and in humility, set it aside, emptied himself and became a servant to all. Enduring even the shame and death of the cross. And so as we come We come in the power of the one who did not use his power to crush his enemies, but instead laid it aside for them, who became broken for our brokenness, who became restored for our restoration. And so as we come, I want to invite you to just pause for a moment and give thanks. Friends, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together. His disciples were an interesting bunch. Tax collectors on one end of the extreme. Zealots on the other end of the extreme. People who, if you would have found them naturally out in society, would have been at each other's throats. And yet he gathered them together in a community and said, No, I'm going to reshape you from the inside out so that your heart is set in tune with the kingdom. He gathered these disciples together. It was a small, intimate setting in an upper room. And after he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Take all of you and eat of it. 
And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and poured it out, saying, This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. The new covenant poured out for you. Take all of you and drink of it. And so it is that when we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his dying until he comes again. Friends, uh, of late, we have been taking communion by gathering the elements out, out in the lobby and, and bringing them together. I invite you to, to do that. If you don't have them, they're back there in the, in the narthex in the lobby for you. But as we come, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take and eat, for all has been made ready. Amen.